David Webb, thanks very much for coming to be in conversation. I've actually just finished reading Thomas Piketty's Capitalism in the 21st Century. Mm. And one of the things he says just before the end of the book is that financial intelligence, transparency of how the capitalist world works, is one of the most important things for democracy to work. Would you agree with that? Well, I, I think transparency in general is important for democracy, whether it's the ability to hold... Uh, your mayor to account or, or local officials or, or higher up and it's one of the things that is uh, holding back uh, China is the lack of that. Um, it's certainly important in financial arena. Information is the lifeblood of, of free markets and you do need to uh, uh, bring uh, understanding to, to uh, the people if you can. What, so, what got you into it? I mean, well, you, I, I'm, you I'm a reformed you... investment banker. I haven't had a deal in many years now. Having, having learnt how local tycoons work and, and all of the uh, ins and outs of the local regulatory system, I thought in 1998, the, the market was crashed out. Mm. I had a hobby investing in Hong Kong small caps, which I wanted to develop further. And I thought I could get something back through uh, uh, opening up a website and uh, commenting on local financial issues. Let's just slide backwards. There was a little throwaway remark in the middle of that about you'd learned how local tycoons work. Hmm. Do you think they're deliberately untransparent? Well, the, the, the issue generally with markets with controlled companies where they predominate, and in Hong Kong, nearly all of the big companies have a controlling shareholder, either, either the government, mainly of China, to right. in Hong Kong's case, um, or, or a family. The issue then is that there isn't what we call a market for corporate control. They have no incentive to keep information flowing to investors in order to maintain their share price for fear of being taken over by someone else who will run it better. Right. Uh, and so they tend to... Uh, reduce information flow to the minimum required by the law or the listing rules. And uh, that's been an ongoing issue in Hong Kong. Uh, it's taken companies, used to, they used to have five months to produce their annual results. Right. They still only have to produce two sets of results, even though mainland China has been requiring its companies to do quarterly reporting since 2003. Is there a, a freer flow of information between interested parties? Is there a a separate is world there of dealing? Is that what you're asking? Oh, I'm sure that never takes place in Hong Kong. <laughs> <laughs> it does take... I mean, this, this was uh, the issue in, in the uh, Dow Jones insider dealing uh, case, right. um, uh, which um, David Lee Kwok Po uh, settled uh, without denying liability or admitting it. Right. Um, and uh, that, the SEC in that case said that he got on a plane with a friend, told him all about the pending takeover of Dow Jones, and as soon as his friend got off the plane, he called his uh, son or son-in-law and, and uh, orders went uh, flowing into the US market. Um, so those were the allegations, both, both parties, uh, the, Mr. Lee and his, his friend uh, uh, denied that but settled for very large payments. And so there's an illustration of the kind of uh, uh, information flow that, that might be going on in, in uh, Hong Kong. And if there were uh, uh, more websites, then all of that information would be freely available to everybody and so you couldn't get a corner on the market? Well, the law now requires, it has done since Hong Kong law since the beginning of 2013, mm -hmm. that companies announce price-sensitive information as soon as they have it. Um, it's, it's not yet a criminal offence not to do that, so there's some asymmetry involved here. Uh, right. it's, it would be a civil offence. You would be hauled up before something called the Market Misconduct Tribunal. You're a mathematician and a, and a computer geek by background, mm -hmm. so, so how did you get into finance? Well, um, I was... Uh, computer programmer in, in my teens. Um, the first generation of home computers became available in the 1980s. And uh, so I started, I learnt, taught myself from books how to program those and uh, produced uh, computer games and, and books on how to write games right. uh, for the Sinclair Spectrum, uh, produced by the great Sy Sir Clive Sinclair. Yes. Yeah. 
Um, and uh, so, so that uh, earned me quite a lot of royalties right. um, and, and then started investing those in the stock market. And uh, that's how I got interested in, in stocks. Is mass, do you think mass is, is really is uh, a hugely important but much neglected part of most people's education? I think maths and science ought to be uh, more important and financial education in schools as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think every child ought to be able to leave school understanding what a compound interest rate is and how it affects their credit card bills and their budgetary decisions. I want to pick up on that, that point about uh, our mathematical, our need for some mathematical and statistical numeracy. And the earlier point we were talking about, which was transparency of, of financial data. But obviously, if you can't understand the financial data because you're not very numerate, there's not a lot of point in putting the data out for public digestion. Well, yes, there is. There is. Because we inform each other in life. So not every investor, uh, certainly not at the retail level, will read a prospectus or an annual report right. of a listed company. Uh, but there are enough people who do read those professionally or even uh, unprofessionally in, in am amateur world right. um, to inform the rest of us through um, analysis, reports, media, and sometimes it comes down to a simple buy or sell recommendation from a newspaper pundit. Do you uh, make, make your raw data accessible? I know, back to Thomas Piketty, one of the things that I really admire about that book and about what lies behind it is the fact that all of the massive amount of data that he's pulling together he's made available on a website in the Paris School of Economics? Um, I think you're asking, is there, is there an API in, uh, that allows people to plug in directly? Um, at the moment, no. Uh, so, but people are welcome to, to what we call scrape the data. It's all nicely laid out in HTML tables in the site. So there are people who I know, because I can tell looking at the page views, uh, right. are collecting the data in an automated way. And in fact, I, I collect quite a lot of the data for the site in the same automated way. I write programs to collect um, director's dealings, for example, from the Stock Exchange website. These, these are facts, they're not copyright. Right. Um, and uh, so I then analyze those, produce a better pr presentation of those for the website. Because the monopolies that produce this information, because they are monopolies, tend not to innovate in the presentation. Right. And I've got data going back, which we plugged in the hard way, from 1990 until now. So it's nearly, it is 25 years worth of, of data. But, the, the, and these, but these are only directors of Hong Kong listed companies, yes. is that right? Yes. Because I mean, I, I know a few people who seem to have an awful lot of directorships, and none of their names appear. Well, there has been a big battle over what information is, is made public through that system. Mm. Uh, but I think it's more just an archaic view that there's some sort of user pays ne uh, necessity there. Uh, and yes, they may also be using it to throttle the access to information. They're worried that people like me will compile it and use it in a more efficient way. Um, allowing people to, at it, with one click, see all of the directorships of, of a person, for example. Uh, but, Which but, uh, one would have thought there was a public interest in yes, having I think there is. information. I think there is. I think there's also an interest in having direct access to the land registry and seeing all of that information too. And it, it is public in the sense that anyone can buy it. Would you think that government has an obligation to produce the sort of information that people like you are putting together? What we need is a freedom of information ordinance corresponding to the laws that are, are in place elsewhere. Uh, currently we only have a code on access to information. Uh, it's very weak. You often get bounced back with uh, uh, excuses driven, extracted from the code. It would all be too difficult <laughs> or um, it would reveal commercially sensitive information. That's why I couldn't get the full accounts of Hong Kong Disneyland or the Cyberport, for example, uh, even though these are basically uh, uh, government-controlled companies. Right. 
so why is that? Is, is that just deliberately government covering itself or there are uh, skeletons in the cupboard that they are very aware of and don't want to let out? Well, you'd have to ask them. I don't know what skeletons they've got. but uh, the Do you suspect they're there? Yes, and I think, I think that they're just afraid of transparency in general. Uh, they don't see themselves as representatives of the people. They see themselves as a self-contained entity. Um, and uh, they don't want to have to defend their decisions with greater scrutiny of the data that could be available to the public. So another example is the MTR, um, which uh, never announces the terms of the winning bids uh, when it awards land. Uh, to, uh, in, in one of its uh, property developments because there is something of a subjective exercise in who, they dis in who wins. What's wrong with Hong Kong's government and its uh, quasi-government bodies that they don't do things well, I, that I think, think common we, sense suggests? If, if, we, if we had a democratically elected government and chief executive, then uh, we would probably see uh, freedom of information law and archive law as well. Uh, and a real uh, competition law? And, and, and a better competition <laughs> law, yes. Mm. Uh, we, we do have one starting next year, uh, but it's... Uh, but didn't government exempt it. itself? From they, yes, they, they, they put in an uh, exemption for all uh, statutory bodies, and, mm. and then they're going to re-include some by exception to that. It should have been the other way around, and it should have been based on their functions. It's amazing. I'm sometimes completely gobsmacked when I think about no archive law, toothless competition laws. Yes. It, it seems almost like there's a hidden agenda. I mean, with a competition law, we are a step forward because I, I, I've been running the website long enough to, to remember in, when I wrote a piece in, a, in an FT debate piece on an anniversary of the uh, handover. Mm. And uh, Anthony Leung, the then financial secretary, wrote his piece on why we don't need a competition law, and I wrote the piece on why we did. Um, and so we moved on from the Tung Chi Wa era, the Tung dynasty, to the right. uh, Chang dynasty. Uh, Donald was much keener um, on not being accountable to anyone, including the tycoons. Right. Um, so he thought he could uh, dilute their power by introducing a competition law. And finally, now we have one uh, which should start taking effect next year. But it doesn't, for example, seize the benefits that we've all recognized from having um, merger control of telecoms right. uh, and translate that to the rest of the economy. So the, the new competition ordinance says that uh, mergers of telecoms companies have to be approved, um, but uh, any other kind of merger doesn't. And that means that if there are two dominant players, uh, but they, it's now illegal for them to fix prices, then you can just merge the two of them together and, and they and can have a single no price. <laughs> right. David, so is it, as people like Joe Studd will argue, that Hong Kong actually has got a little narrow bunch of oligarchs who run this, their part of Hong Kong's economy, which is a large part, pretty much uncontrolled, and the competition law is not going to get anywhere near them. Um, I don't think that's quite the case. Uh, the competition law will outlaw price fixing, um, and so you won't, be, you won't see any more associations on their websites recommending prices for freight forwarding, for example, which is what the Freight Forwarding Association did a while ago. Right pointed that out. Um, and uh, I think that's probably why Li Ka-shing was looking to sell Park and Shop, uh, one of the two great uh, supermarket chains here, um, earlier this year or last year. Uh, but uh, in the end, withdrew it from the market. I think probably the potential buyers of that overseas looked at the uh, uh, incoming competition law and thought that the margins were about to come down. Uh, but, um, uh, but, it, but it's also, I think, the, the uh, 
the, comp the lack of a competition law and retail price maintenance has, has basically made it very difficult for people who want to reduce costs in the distribution system, deliver to your home, uh, not have to rent um, shops from landlords and, right. and cut down those costs. You know, they, they can undercut uh, the uh, official prices quite substantially and there, there should be a market for that. Let's go back to the stock market. I have this strong sense of the stock market as some, some equivalent to the jockey club's uh, put your money on the horses. Well, that's arena. an issue, again, on competition. Uh, the law currently says there shall be only one stock exchange and it shall be the Stock Exchange of Hong Kong Limited. Right. Uh, it's like, almost like there is only one god, if you like. But, <laughs> uh, and and uh, the, uh, similarly, the law says that you can only place bets with the jockey club. Uh, the truth is that the, the, the charity thing is a fig leaf uh, for mm. protecting the existence of a monopoly gambling uh, right. company here. And uh, uh, most of the money that uh, punters lose about 15 sixteenths of it goes directly to the government in tax and about 1% of it goes into the uh, Jockey Club Charities Trust uh, which sometimes spends it but often hoards it. Right. Um, we deviated so from your question though which was... The stock exchange. The stock exchange. This is this enormous what seems to me gambling arena mm. where people gamble with remarkably little uh, solid inf information mm. quite often and that's a monopoly too but it's not paying yeah. big taxes. Am I right um, on that? Well, it pays tax on its profits, profits which are uh, humongous for a, for a stock exchange. It makes about an 80% pre-tax profit margin. Right. And while I was on the board of HKX, of course, I had to support that as being uh, in the interest of shareholders um, <laughs> of HKX. But, but uh, it's not in the interest of the general public. We should allow competition between exchanges. Um, and, and there uh, used to be quite a few Hong Kong Well, there were four, yes, back yeah. in the 1980s until 1986 yeah. when they were merged together. But today, we could have multiple trading platforms competing on service, how, how long they stay open, whether they stay open for lunch, for example, which has been an ongoing issue with the brokers here. And um, similarly on, on, on the uh, transaction fees that the exchange charges and on the bid offer spreads that they impose on the uh, markets, th those things would be more competitive. They so, would be, in other words, they would be set by a market, not market by forces, fiat. Rather than, rather than by just uh, argument and vested interests, because the brokers still elect one member of the Legislative Council uh, and 1.5% um, of the election committee, and so they tend to have some political influence here. How did they get to that position? I mean, it's not equal across the whole financial services sector, is it? I mean, do, do, do people like... Uh... Well, that's, the, that, that's the, the, what is called the financial services legislator, is actually the small broker's legislator. Right. Because there are, not uh, individuals, but about 500 companies that have a vote, many of which have common parent companies right. um, and uh, it's, it's based on the original trading seats on the exchange um, right. and the, that's about 500 electorate in total uh, but there are 30,000 people with a current SFC license who have been entrusted to handle your money but are not entrusted to vote for the legislator in that seat so it's clearly not financial services, um, uh, asset management companies even don't have votes in that. Do, do you think, I mean do you think the functional constituency idea, as it's been implemented in Hong Kong, is in principle okay, or do you think, like many thoughtful people, that the functional constituency should never have been there in the first place? It's just um, not a sensible way to, to um, construct your government. Uh, you know, we, we don't bother with lobby groups in Hong Kong because we give them their own seats in the, in the uh, Congress or Parliament, and that's, that's not uh, uh, a sensible way forward. Are you active <coughs> in... Well, I think I think the, the functional constituency. I think the the the, the current uh, debate over over the um, 2017 uh, uh, election 
uh, is missing an, an earlier deadline, which is the 2016 uh, LegCo election, because that's right. a stepping stone to 2020, and it's also a stepping stone to the potential shape and, and makeup of the nominating committee in 2017. Mm -hmm. And we need to, have to, to basically dilute the power of the FCs by broadening their functional constituency members. And if we don't uh, stop corporate voting and give everybody who works in these sectors a vote uh, to broaden them, to make them look like the education sector where every teacher has a vote or mm -hmm. accounting where every accountant has a vote already, because uh, there are some FCs that, that do work that often produce pro-democracy legislators who would be willing to abolish functional constituencies. Right. If we don't do all of that in 2016 as a stepping stone to abolishing them in 2020, um, then the membership of the nominating committee, which mirrors the functional constituencies, will be similarly constrained with corporate voting electing the banking members of the nominating committee and corporate voting electing the insurance members and so on. So, so actually, the, all of this debate about direct uh, nomination, civic nomination, uh, is doing a great disservice to Hong Kong. I think that's pretty much off the table as far as Beijing is concerned. Right. We need to be realistic about what we can do um, to uh, dilute the FCs in 2016 um, and have a really representative nominating committee in 2017. So this has been a failure, if you like, of Hong Kong's uh, opinion leaders and maybe the government campaign too, not drawing attention to the significance of this particular issue. Well, I think the government's quite happy to let the thing fester because they, they don't really want the system to change at all. I think, oh, Beijing would be quite happy to see a repeat of, of uh, 2012's uh, election yeah. arrangements. Are you an optimist? Do you think Hong Kong is going to pull the, uh, the, the coal, coal out of the fire before everything just bursts into flame? Um, well, I think the bigger question there, then, is, is what will happen in the mainland, mm. because that will determine what happens here. The mainland government has proceeded, uh, it was almost impossible not to produce prosperity when you start with outright central planning and communism in 1979. Right. You can make lots of mistakes and still make people better off, and, they, and so they yeah. bought uh, the consent of the people. Uh, with prosperity up to the current level of about 6,000 US dollars per, per capita of GDP. Right. But I don't think you can get the next doubling and doubling after that of GDP and all the economic efficiencies that you want without letting go of a lot of controls. Mm -hmm. uh, if we don't get that, I think that uh, the government in, in Beijing is setting itself up for, for a Chinese spring at some point uh, uh, right. where in the circumstances of an economic uh, slowdown, a housing crash or a banking crisis or something of those on those terms, uh, people uh, will, will basically uh, overthrow the government. But in the meantime? Uh... In, in the meantime, uh, I'm not very optimistic on this round. Um, we've been through several rounds already, 2007 and then 2012. Uh, and I think we're going to sort of muddle through and still have a chief executive in 2017 who looks like he's been part of a rigged election, right. uh, he or she. Um, and. Uh, uh, and, and then a lack of an electoral mandate to do the right things for the Hong Kong economy. And that's been the issue for the last 16 years, really, is that without a mandate, you always have to take the easy route. But <laughs> by next July the 1st, 2015, um, we probably will uh, have a, uh, a decision um, <laughs> on the electoral arrangements, at least for 2016, and there'll be something uh, that is either palatable and acceptable, or there'll be mass protests. And I think any any talk about the Occupy Central thing is a sideshow to that, really. Mm -hmm. The issue is, will, this, will it be so bad that, that half a million people turn out and object, or will it be something that they just muddle through and isn't optimal for the economy but uh, moves us on to the next uh, cycle? You, th you think it's a flip of the coin? Yes, I 
as, as I'd say, 50-50, but I'm not a betting man. That would be illegal in Hong Kong. <laughs> David Webb, thank you very much. Very, very much enjoyed that. Thank you.